Hello and welcome to another episode of Microphilosophy with me, Julian Bagini. This series takes as its theme the title of my new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. We have a very simple format. Each of our guests is going to propose one thing to do or to avoid in order to think better, and then we'll discuss it all together. And if there's time, I'll throw in a suggestion of my own. So let me introduce my guests. Anil Seth is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex and also co-director of the Sussex Centre for Consciousness Science. Now, you may have noticed he is a scientist, uh, not a philosopher in the career sense. But that's important because in my book, How to Think Like a Philosopher, I talk about how it's quite important to not restrict yourself to the thinking tools of just one discipline. So it is very important that we had at least one guest in the series who was not a professional philosopher. And I'm delighted that that person is Anil Seth. Anil is the author of Being You, The New Science of Consciousness. And I honestly say this not just because he's here, but if you want to read just one book on consciousness, this is the one. It's a subject which tends to encourage speculation, fluff, but also, at the other end, some very hard and impenetrable science and some very bad philosophy in between. Anil's book manages that great feat of managing to be clear and also philosophically rigorous and subtle and also scientifically well-informed. So I'm very happy. Welcome, Anil. Thank you, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for making me feel welcome as a, as a non-philosopher. I appreciate that. We also have Simon Kirchin. Simon is a professor of philosophy at the University of Kent. He produces two podcasts, Philosophy Gets Schooled and Philosophy Takes on the News, a weekly discussion about the ideas behind the headlines. He works in a couple of areas, in particular around norms, reasons and values, and also about comedy and free speech. He's also a pantomime dame, which is something which is potentially going to be illegal in several US states quite quickly. So uh, welcome, Simon. Hi, Julian. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Really good to be here. Okay, so let's get cracking. Let's turn to Anil first. So what is it you'd like to put on the table for us? Something to either do or to avoid if we want to think better? The principle I'll put on the table is that to think well we need to recognize our own point of view, indeed, that we have a point of view. And a specific context that I I think is worth exploring today is two fallacies, two related fallacies. One is the fallacy of anthropomorphism, where we tend to project human-like qualities into things that seem superficially similar in some way to ourselves. You know, we tend to interpret the world from our own human-centered perspective. And this is related more generally to this fallacy of reification, where we assume something is is real when it is rather a concept that we might use to describe something that we don't fully understand. I wanted to start with the fallacy of anthropomorphism because it's kind of timely at the moment. There's all this fuss in the worlds of machine learning and artificial intelligence, which I'm kind of quite connected to, about large language models. These are incredibly impressive algorithms, which are quite capable of engaging in relatively fluent conversation with humans. They even arguably pass the so-called Turing test, where it becomes very hard to distinguish whether we're interacting with a machine or or with another human being. They're really very good at this, and they've improved dramatically. But along with this improvement, there's just been this raft of claims that they, in quotes, understand things, that they possess meaning and even and i think most bizarrely that they are in some sense conscious uh, which i think is not warranted at all and what's underlying these claims is 
I think this this idea of anthropomorphism where we, if we were engaging in a similar kind of dialogue, conversational dialogue, then we human beings, that would always be accompanied by this feeling of understanding and, and a knowledge of what the words mean. So when we interact with these other systems, we project understanding into them. When really what's going on under the hood, I mean, people don't really know what's going on under the hood of these large language models. They're insanely complicated and interesting ways. But it's very unlikely that they actually understand anything at all because you can you can keep tripping them up in all sorts of ways. And I think this is important because to the extent that we project qualities directly into things on the basis of not recognizing our own anthropomorphic bias, and we obscure our ability to both understand these systems and to figure out the best way to interact with them. Now, that's just one example, but I think there's many cases in which this kind of tendency to not recognize our own human-centered perspective has been similarly pernicious in our ability to understand and interact. Yeah, really interesting. And I think if we think about AI, there's some contentious ideas there. Uh, Simon, you got any immediate thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, thanks, Andy. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea, the, the, the basic idea of just understanding our, our limitations. And I think the, the example you give is a really good one about LLMs at the moment. I suppose that the first thing that occurs to me, though, I suppose just to press you a little bit, I mean, perhaps with anthropomorphism, but more generally, there's something really good about having a human-centred idea as, as well. And I suppose it's about trying to make sure that LLMs aren't completely alien from us as well. And so there's a kind of grasping of trying to understand these things. I'm just wondering if there's ways in which there's something positive about the way in which we might try to understand LLMs or anything else, just, just from our, you know, using anthropomorphic ideas or, or anything else. I think there is. I just think we have to be careful to recognize that's what we're doing when we're doing it. I mean, another context where I think this is really critical is in how we think about the mental lives and conscious lives of non-human animals. Because here there's, there's huge ethical and moral implications in animal welfare. And again, we have this habit of making judgments about the ethical and moral status of other animals based on their similarity to us. And in particular, we use intelligence as a kind of surrogate or a proxy for having a conscious mind that's, that's worthy of, that we should be ethically sensitive to. And here, it's both a problem, but also a necessity, because if we're trying to understand something about the inner lives of, of other animals, then we have no choice but to use humans as a kind of benchmark because we know we are conscious and we can understand something about how, how our own brains and bodies relate to our conscious experience. So we're kind of caught here between anthropocentrism. You know, just, just like everything has to be human-like in order for us to care about it. And anthropomorphism, where we get very liberal projecting human qualities into other things. So navigating this balance, I think, is really tricky. And if we do it right, yeah, then I think there's there's plenty to be gained because we do stand a chance of extrapolating sensibly from what we can tell in the human case to what we can say about non-humans, whether they're octopuses or sheep or chat GPT. Yeah, in fact, the, the thing that comes to mind, uh, a few years ago, uh, David Attenborough was doing a nature program and they were really looking, I don't know if it was the whole thing about insects or whether it was just one program uh, about insects, but the, the cameras were so small that you could see kind of 
um, parent insects really nurturing, notice that word, really nurturing baby insects. And this kind of made the insects seem kind of, you know, more, well, more, more human-like, right? That they had this nurturing instinct, they were caring for their young in the same way that we might see, you know, adult cats caring for kittens or, or something like that. And I remember a lot of the talk around that program was, oh, look, insects, they're kind of cuddly and nice. They're not just these insects that you swat away or kind of stamp on or something like that. And I think that that's, that, that was going through my head as you were, as you were speaking, that there's something really interesting about understanding and casting, in this case, animals in a certain sort of light. It's really, really important to understand that that's what we're doing. This goes even further. There's a lovely new book by a guy called Paco Calvo called Planter Sapiens, which is all about plants. And um, in the book, he makes the case, it's a book he co-wrote with Natalie Lawrence, he makes the case that, that plants have intelligence and even might have consciousness. Now, I do not buy into this. I think intelligence, consciousness are different things. And, and consciousness is something that requires a lot more than complex behavior. But what he does do very effectively is give us a sense of how our quotidian impression of plants depends on on time scale and through time lapse photography plants look very different they look as if they are engaging in things like intentional behavior reaching a tendril towards some food and and following the sun around and doing, you know doing things that we just don't wouldn't recognize in our normal way of interacting with these things so i think it's hard to know what to make of cases like this i think that the general lesson is that by changing our point of view, we might get a clearer picture of what's going on, but still being careful about projecting too much into these into these cases, into these examples. Yeah, sometimes it's kind of subtle, isn't it? I've got this particular bugbear about those documentaries with National Treasure David Attenborough, where they describe the animals having a meal. I mean, this seems to me to be anthropomorphic. Animals feed. A meal is something you kind of sit down to as a human being. I mean, that might sound harmless, and maybe in this case it is, but you get a lot of examples like that. The cumulative effect, I think, is somewhat distorting. And with plants, actually, it's even more interesting. One of the leading people who talks about the, the plants talks about the mother tree and how the mother tree nurtures her children. And that seems to me incredibly anthropomorphic and potentially very misleading indeed. On the other hand, though, throughout history, a lot of the mistakes people have made has been by not acknowledging the similarities, by assuming animals are so different that even though they might be writhing around in apparent pain, no, no, they're not really in pain because they're just an animal. So it seems to me you can go wrong in the opposite direction, refusing to acknowledge the similarities between us and other animals and other creatures as reflecting real similarities in perhaps how we perceive and experience the world. So it seems to me your point is really kind of a warning. It's that there may be a genuine similarity, which we should be paying attention to, or it may be that we're being misled into thinking things are more similar than they are. And really, we just need to be aware of both those possibilities and think things through carefully and not to jump to conclusions about it. Uh, at the beginning of that, Anil, you also mentioned this other idea of reification. It's actually one of my favourite philosophical words. Um, what is that and how does it relate to anthropomorphism? Well, in my understanding, reification is this fallacy where an abstract concept or idea is is treated as if it's a real concrete entity and in it's in a sense it's confusing the map with the territory and i think there's a number of examples certainly in my field of trying to understand consciousness and, and the mind more generally where we see examples of things that we get misled by 
believing they have some essence, they have some ontological status, they exist. And a, a good example for me is um, free will. So this has been one of the most perennially complicated, controversial topics at the interface of neuroscience and philosophy and psychology and, and, and literature and probably everything. And it gets complicated in part when we when we think of free will as either something we have or we don't have. And that's the error of reification, that free will is this essence and, and quite what it means to people will depend on you know, what they think free will is. But typically it can mean you know where the mind has some contra-causal power. It's able to swoop in and change the flow of physical events from going one way to, to going another way through the power of consciousness itself. Now, this picture of free will is very, very hard to sustain. It's, it's almost, I think it's actually impossible to sustain if you take a view of, of the mind that it's kind of continuous with nature and that you know, all properties of the mind are, are underwritten by things happening in the physical world. But that doesn't mean that we don't have experiences of free will. And we, each of us, we experience the intentions to, I, I, just before this podcast, I, I wanted a cup of tea and that felt like a conscious intention and I felt like I made a cup of tea of my own free will. And for me, the key thing here is to understand what underpins that kind of experience, that kind of perception of my body doing thing, what role it might play in the the larger ecology of my mind and brain and body and world, but in a way that doesn't reify free will as this kind of magic essence, this magic super powerful stuff that swoops in and does something that we might not only reify, but then feel is, is fundamental to our identity. And actually zooming out a little bit, the whole idea of self can be thought of as another example of, of reification. This goes back very, very um, many, many years, centuries, the idea that the self is a kind of essence, that inside my head is a little mini me that's peering out of the world through the transparent windows of my eyes, perceiving what's there, thinking about it and deciding what to do and kind of pulling strings inside my body to make muscles move and so on. I mean, I'm caricaturing it quite a bit, but there is still this quite pervasive idea that the self is a thing, you know, is an essence that in some religious traditions at any rate, might survive the demise of the body. And other people say, well, the self is an illusion. I don't like that either. You know, the self for me is a kind of perception. It's a way in which the brain experiences the body from the outside and the inside and, and over time. And it's a very useful perception for the brain to construct. In philosophy, if I understand my history right, this goes back at least to David Hume and his idea of the, the self as a kind of bundle of related perceptions. And I think there's something really right about that. And in order to fully understand the relationship between the brain, the body, and these experiences of selfhood, we, we need to avoid this false reification of assuming that the self is an essence, that it exists in some intrinsic way. Well, it's interesting that because, of course, Hume gets the credit in the Western tradition, but the Buddhists were way ahead of the game with their no self or anatta view a millennia before. And then I've got to ask you this question as a neuroscientist, because the, the idea of reification in philosophy is most associated, I think, with Gilbert Ryle, his classic The Concept of Mind, written during the Second World War. And in Ryle's view, the biggest and most egregious example of reification is thinking of the mind as a thing. And I just wondered uh, whether you agreed that that was a kind of a, a archetypal example of a, a reification mistake. 
Well, to, to some extent. And here, again, it's a little bit like the idea of anthropomorphism. There's actually a potentially beneficial good side to, to reification, that it gives us something we can work with, even if it's a, a provisional stand-in for, for some later, deeper understanding. So the mind, I think, can be reified in an unproductive way as something that is separate from the brain and the body that that has its own independent existence. But the slightly more nuanced idea of the mind as what the brain does in conjunction with the body in the world, I think is is more defensible. But it may not, in fact, it won't turn out to be just one thing. What we call mind becomes a collection of cognitive competences and perceptual abilities and, and, and so on. But it's a good sort of stand-in. And um, you can think of this in physics as well, like gravity is a kind of reification fallacy in a way. People posited this, this idea of gravity um, from Newton on, and it's really good at explaining so many observations about astronomical data and galvanized our understanding of the universe. But then Einstein came along and, and realized that gravity is not, in fact, this, this force. It's, it's, it's built into the curvature of space-time. So gravity becomes something else. But the Newtonian stopgap of his kind of gravity was nonetheless very, very useful indeed. Yeah, with the self, I have this sort of slogan, which is that the self is a verb disguised as a noun, it's that we are selfing in some kind of way. The brain, the body create this self. It's what we do, not a thing that we are. So Simon, you've been listening very patiently to us go on for quite a long time here. Uh, any, any thoughts on this one? I have. I'm, I'm surprised by myself actually being so so patient, Julian. Yeah, in fact, I was just going to make that, that point that you made about verbs and nouns. I mean, hearing NL... Uh, describe this. I mean, absolutely right. I mean, that the idea. Some, when I'm talking to undergraduates and we're talking about free will, I often say, you, you know, you almost get the impression that there's free will coursing through my veins. It's like blood, and that we have to discover this blood and feel it. And similarly, with the idea of the self, that you know, people can describe the self as if it's some sort of table that I've left in the other room, and I'm going to need to find it, and I'm going to bump into it. If you get into this mistaken way of thinking, then you ask kind of silly questions like we need to discover the self or we need to discover free will as if it's these things that we need to find. And then, of course, we can't find them. And then we get into the opposite idea of, well, the self is is an illusion, right? Well, it's only illusion if you've got the wrong view of what you're trying to find in the first place and thinking that it's a thing. And so I think this is all really useful as questions to ask and kind of interrogations of how we're thinking and speaking about a thing, which may not in fact be a thing in, in, in the first place. Because there's clearly something there in a very general sense of something, but actually working out what it is and avoiding the pejorative sense of reification is, is really, really important. Well, listen, this is a bit ironic, actually, because in the book, one of the things I talk about is that if you want to think better, you need to give yourself time and not rush things. And yet in these podcasts, <laughs> I'm always having to move us along before we've exhausted the topic. So that's a bit unfortunate. So, Simon, um, what do you like to propose for us something to think about in order to think better? So, in fact, um, I hope it will connect quite nicely with what Neil's been talking about, because this show isn't just thrown together, folks. We do think about it a bit beforehand. And in fact, there's a really good prior episode, episode four, between Claire Chambers and Lucy O'Brien, um, which connects with something else, I'm, uh, the thing I'm going to say. Um, so my idea is about finding a balance um, between being confident about what you want to say 
And that might be your ideas, your arguments, uh, confident about your tradition that you're working in or your discipline. But then also being pretty humble uh, and thinking that you won't have the whole picture. And indeed, if there's a kind of question of right and wrong, you might actually be be wrong about it. Okay, so um, perhaps then I'll I'll fill this in a bit for you, uh, Julian. So thinking about that episode, that discussion between Lucy and Claire. So I think Claire started off by saying it's really important to understand an opponent's kind of best argument or set of ideas against what you're uh, going to say, which is kind of very, very important, I think. Um, And there's a really nice interplay between Lucy and Claire, I think early on in that episode, where they talk about exploring an idea in a seminar room and giving it chance to breathe, as it were. Um, And I think that the the whole message, there are lots of great things in that episode, but one of the main messages I I got from it was it's really important, first of all, to understand other people in and of themselves. But if you really want to understand what you're saying, it's, it's important to understand other people and their point of view and therefore how they might understand what you're getting at because you only really understand your point of view if you understand how others might might be thinking through your ideas and it struck me that when uh, Anil was speaking uh, it comes back to this idea this balance which I'm trying to um, think about between being confident and being humble so if you're talking with someone else you need to be confident in your ideas we also need to be humble enough to think well perhaps they're understanding things better than I am and as Neil was speaking, that there's this problem, this this pejorative understanding of reification, right? We're trying to build models, build theories, build ideas, and that might be as a scientist or as a philosopher, or perhaps some understanding of a relationship if you're a poet or someone writing literature. You've got a view of how things are, and you need to be confident to assert that and to say, look, this is how I think things are. But that's as balanced with a certain sort of you know, humility that other people might have a view. Other people might have a model or a theory or a, or a perspective on, on some issue or problem or, or phenomena that helps you and helps us understand it a bit better. So I think there's that really important balance between being confident in your own ideas and what you're trying to say, but also realise other people are going to have their perspectives as well. So finding that balance is, is pretty hard, but, but very important. Yeah, and by the way, thanks for plugging episode four for me there. Um, your check is in the post, or perhaps as we ought to say now, uh, your crypto payment is in the WhatsApp. And all this is interesting to me because, you know, I've read a little bit about scientific discoveries, history of science, and obviously perhaps the most colourful stories, the ones that get repeated the most. But it seems to be not uncommon that a lot of people have, have made their breakthroughs by quite stubbornly holding on to a particular point of view in the face of criticism, in the face of experimental failure. So we have this balance between, on the one hand, sort of being open, humble and so forth, and also sticking to your guns. How do you think that sort of plays out or should play out in the domain of science? The first thing that came to mind, actually, about finding this balance between confidence and humility is that the nature of the scientific process, at least idealistically enforces a great deal of humility. You know, the world has its own perspective on your ideas and that will show up in, in the data. So there's that continual dialogue, not only with other people, but with the world itself that can keep overconfidence in check. But that's a little bit of an idealistic view of, of how science progresses, as, as Julian was, was hinting. And um, there is this, I think, 
in certain cases, that, well, there's a whole range of people doing science, right? There's some people who, as, as Julian suggested, really almost belligerently hold on to theories and ideas that often don't amount to anything, but sometimes do, and sometimes maintaining that independence perspective in a larger temporal frame turns out to be necessary, turns out to have been prescient, but only kind of later on, maybe when the right sort of tools and methods or the the rest of the academic context has caught up with somebody's perspective. I'm struggling to think of of concrete examples of this, but I think they they must be legion, certainly in, in my field. The other thing that it made me think of is uh, that you know, in psychology, there's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is kind of well known as people tending to overestimate their ability in certain things when they have relatively low ability and correspondingly often underestimating their ability when they have high ability. We've got this kind of regression to the mean in how people's ideas, abilities, call it what you will, that their performance in some way correlates or relates to their attitudes about their performance. And this, I think, is one reason why groups often make better decisions than single individuals. The psychologist Bahadur Bahrami has done some wonderful work. I think you mentioned it in in your book, Julian, about how groups of people, by sort of settling into an equilibrium where different perspectives get weighted by confidence, can come up with, in, in some cases, a very you know, an almost optimal decision. Of course, this isn't always the case. And there are some just amazing to me historical examples of where sticking to one's guns has turned out to be absolutely critical. I was listening the other day to a story I've heard before, but it's it's a terrifying example of how important this can be. Back in 1983, there was this Russian major in the Air Force who, who noticed that on his radar screen, there were what appeared to be five incoming missiles headed for the Soviet Union. And the protocol that he had signed up to, part of the military hierarchy, was that he should pass this information on to his superiors. It was going to reach uh, the president and would almost certainly have triggered World War Three. You know, the protocol was that Russia would release a massive retaliatory wave of nuclear strikes. And of course, then the US would see that coming and launch its own retaliatory wave. And very possibly civilization could have ended back in 1983. This didn't happen because this one guy, Stanislav Petrov, had a confidence in his intuition that there was something not quite right about this, that there were only five missiles coming. Why would the US launch five missiles? This wasn't in the protocol anyway. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. But sort of sticking his neck out arguably saved the world. Of course, it's tricky to know when to do that and when not to do that. In in psychology, we study quite a lot this um, competence called metacognition, cognition about cognition, uh, more informally knowing when you know. And we can study this in very simplified context. And it's, it turns out people vary quite a lot in their ability to have knowledge and exercise knowledge about their own knowledge. And in one, in one, I think, quite remarkable twist on this, my uh, former postdoc and now, now colleague, Maxine Sherman, has done a study about whether people know when they know when they know. You know do they have insight into their own metacognitive ability? Of course, you can, you can take this even further, but it turns out this is actually a measurable thing. And people do indeed at least in some sort of simple psychological tasks, which usually involves staring at dots on a screen and making a decision about which way they're moving. People know, 
people know when they know and people also know when they know when they know and i find this fascinating that we might actually be able to measure aspects of this this balance between confidence in one's beliefs humility in one's beliefs and, and critically one's insight into this balance and here's where i think it connects with the reification it's not that that balance itself is is wrong it's just getting the balance right i think requires us to know that we're we're trying to find that balance and having some insight into where on the spectrum we lie I mean, just to follow up on that, uh, Anil, yeah, I mean, I think, so one thing I didn't say, but I think you've illustrated perfectly, all sorts of really good examples from history of science and indeed kind of the Cold War and, and everything else, that actually finding where this balance is, is really hard. And as a philosopher or a scientist or just everyday person doing your shopping, it's really hard to work out where it is. But actually understanding as a first stage that there is a balance to be struck I think is at least some form of progress. Of course, what 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 becomes kind of less progress, just as you were speaking, I can imagine meta metacognition and meta 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 metacognition. At that point, you start going mad, <laughs> and so we have to leave it all behind. Okay, but but understanding that there is a balance to be struck in the first place. That actually, hey, I've been confident before, but perhaps I was overconfident. What are these other people saying? This model seems to be working, but perhaps it's a breaking point. Perhaps I need to pull back and rethink the phenomena and try and see it simply. I think having those thoughts is is really important in any in any walk of life, but but particularly if you're a philosopher. One challenge this raises is that in life we often get feedback about how well we've done at something, you know, whether our, our ideas are right or wrong. But we less often get feedback about our confidence whether we were right to have placed confidence in something or wrong to have placed confidence in something. Can people improve in these abilities to, to know when they know and know when they know when they know? I think there's some evidence, again, from psychology that this can happen. But I think it's something that, in general, it is hard because the world isn't organized to kind of tune our metacognitive insights in the way it's set up sometimes to tune our first-order insights about what's going on. Yeah, I think context is going to make a big difference here, isn't it? So, for example, if you think about you know science, as Anil has said, you do have this kind of sense that you know reality will bite at some point, and so you know you can perhaps afford to be a little bit aggressive and push yourself because you will get that fight back from the facts, from from the data. Whereas in philosophy, I think it's a bit different. People hold competing views, and there isn't a killer fact which shows one to be right and one to be wrong and so in that domain perhaps you know you've got to you can't rely on the external world doing the job of being a strong enough opponent for you in that sense maybe you need to be a little bit more humble than you do in the sciences although just uh, there is a thing that i think we can be (laughs) it's a kind of meta theme on this confidence thing we can be overconfident in the ability of the scientific process to mitigate against overconfidence because it's easy it's easy to do science wrong and in fact this happens all the time people think just often think that in virtue of collecting data and analyzing it you know they're doing science but of course it's not like that at all if you just do that you're vulnerable to all sorts of other biases like post hoc confirming ideas just by fishing around in the data so-called harking or hypothesizing after the fact you know we scientists in general and I've, i've been i've done this i'm sure tend to do experiments that are designed to confirm what they think is true rather than to try to disconfirm their beliefs. This 
this should be what scientists do, but it happens less often than we might like. And so I think the institutions of science, the practices of science, need to evolve along with our understanding of these issues so they're better able to help us navigate these these balances. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really like about what Simon said is that he's, he talks about there being this balance. It's finding the right point between two extremes. And of course, that's an idea which, you know, Aristotle would have jumped on and applauded straight away. Because a lot of the time you get these kind of smart thinking tips or tips for anything in life. And it's very much about avoid this and do that. It's about binaries. It's about choices, the bad way and the good way. And the Aristotelian view is rather that the right way is usually some point between two different types of extremes. So even things which seem to be obviously always wrong fit that model. Take the ad hominem fallacy. So this is the idea that you should never attack the person making the argument. You should always focus on the argument. Well, actually, you know, in a way, that's a mean between one extreme. It's like just going for the person and ignoring the argument. But you can also go the other way and just completely ignore the person. But what if the person giving the argument is a known liar, a known charlatan, someone who is repeatedly got a track record of being deceptive and so forth. But in those cases, I think it's entirely appropriate to pay attention to that and to, to take that into account. So even there, I think, you know, this idea of finding a balance is important. Well, let me just turn on to one final thing, then I'll throw something into the ring for you to uh, chew over. And I'm taking advantage of the fact we've got Anil in the room here. And that's the idea that we need to be properly respectful of the facts and of empirical data and also respect the power of science, but that we must avoid scientism. Now, this, is, of course, is a rather slippery word. So scientism is the view that the only things that really have any sort of truth value or make any proper sense are the kind of things that can be tested scientifically, can be given a scientific account. Everything else is just nonsense uh, or just playing with words. So if you take ethics, for example. Well, on the scientific account, there is no such thing as ethics, really. Right and wrong are not things that have any kind of scientific uh, sense. They can't even make sense of those words in scientific terms. Scientism is often a derogatory term, of course. There are one or two out and proud scientific types like Alex Rosenberg, for example. So, you know, scientism, most people are against it. It's easy to be against it. So sort of rather than asking you, are you for or against scientism? Perhaps you've got some thoughts on, you know, where the problem with scientism lies and, and maybe whether sometimes we're too afraid of being scientistic. In fact, we, we ought to give more weight to scientific ways of thinking than we do. It is a it's a big question. I it, it, You're right. It's easy to be against, especially from the perspective of a scientist where you know I've, I can sort of say that you know, what I'm doing is, is science and that's that's useful, that's uncontroversially helpful in many contexts. So I don't have to give up very much by saying I'm against scientism, the idea you know, that everything needs to have a basis in the, the methodology of the scientific process. But I, I do think, I mean, I, I wouldn't stick up too strongly for scientism because it, it seems to me that science does have its limits. It may not have its kind of in principle limits, but it certainly has in practice limits that there are certain things that we do in, as a, a culture which just don't fit neatly into the kinds of processes that science generally involves. And if we want to engage with literature, this is not something for which a scientific perspective is going to be particularly 
useful. You know, I was I was always struck also by this field of neuroaesthetics. So the idea that maybe we can understand people's aesthetic responses to artworks by sticking them in a brain scanner, showing them Picasso and seeing what lights up inside their head. I really don't think we understand very much this way. This is not to say that science has nothing to offer our understanding of human aesthetic responses. I think it, I think it absolutely does. And you know, in, in my book, I talk a little bit about the parallels between thinking of perception as a process of brain-based prediction and the art historical concept of the beholder's share, the idea that the aesthetic encounter with a piece of art depends in large part on what the observer brings to the interaction and that some great pieces of art really leverage that in a way that, say, just a, a photograph of a scene doesn't. Impressionist paintings, for instance, can be understood as, in one way as reverse engineering the visual system. So they engage the beholder's share. So here science is making a contribution but it's not the whole story by any means. There's also a cultural story and historical story. All these perspectives, I think, are absolutely necessary for a rounded appreciation of human cultural practice. So, yeah, I do think there are limits, but it is a challenge. Like, if science were able to take into account these kinds of data from history, data about culture, would that be sufficient? I don't think it would be. I think it's, it's just not the kind of thing that science does. But I may be underestimating the resources of a sufficiently nuanced scientism. The question that raises is whether scientism is a mistake because we haven't got that far with science yet. And so therefore, we're trying to kind of get science to do more work than it's currently able to do. Or whether or not there's some in principle reason why we should think that certain things uh, cannot be given a scientific explanation and that nonetheless they have some important value for us. I mean, I'm not sure why we need to commit ourselves on that. I'm kind of with Patricia Church and another guest on earlier in the series. And, you know, she said in the past, you know, that why don't we just wait and see? Let's see how far we get with our scientific uh, inquiries and maybe it will solve problems in philosophy we didn't think science can solve. Maybe it won't. But, you know, let's just wait and see. So uh, that's a really interesting uh, question, Julian, about the not just whether there's limits, but in principle limits, because I agree completely with what uh, Anil was saying. And, and something that goes through my head is, let's say something like emotions, right? So clearly, there's, you know, things that uh, are part of the scientific method, um, where you can understand all sorts of emotions that are our, you know, everyday feelings like love, hate, and, and anger, and, and so on. But do I exhaust my understanding of love and hatred and anger just by uh, the scientific method? It just doesn't seem that, that, that I do, because it seems that, that poets and playwrights and, and other people can, can tell us very interesting things. And, and so then to go to your question, Julian, about, well, yeah, but perhaps science might expand uh, and be different such that we can then understand all of that stuff without thinking about what the poet and playwright say. I suppose my thought to that is, well, we, possibly, but then I think, I think we change what science is quite radically if it's then in, encompassing what the poet and playwright are now telling us. Because there has to be sort of not just limits on what science is telling us, but limits on what we count as the scientific method. And so that's the sort of thing that, that goes through my head about the first response back, that science clearly expands and can do wonderful things, would it carry on expanding such that it can then fill the type of explanation that poets and playwrights are giving us? I'm, I'm quite 
I'm quite suspicious of that, actually, and doubtful. Just uh, on one point there, Simon, I think that's really that's really interesting. Another distinction that I think is helpful here is between science and reductionism. Mm-hmm. So in your example about emotion, one of my pet hates in sort of reading popular coverage of neuroscience and psychology is things like love is just dopamine in the brain. Yeah. It is not. You know, the, the, it is not the same thing. And the idea that a full understanding of emotion would be a story expressed in terms of neurochemicals and their balances and their interactions, I think is totally wrong-headed. That's a kind of reductionist scientific story. And that's only one way of, of doing science. There are other perspectives on science which, which treat like, higher-level properties, emergent properties, as being real in some sense, which nicely brings us full circle back to reification. So I think there is a sensible way. So that science can be broadened beyond simply telling a reductive story that phenomena Y just is phenomena X. But I also am suspicious of this idea that it can be in principle extended to poetry and literature and all these things. I think there, there are some ground rules by which science plays, which is hypothesis testing against evidence. And I don't think these other traditions, as important as they are for understanding human culture, human society, animal culture, animal society, the world in general, they do extend beyond science. So Janet Radcliffe-Richards had this really nice distinction between debunking and non-debunking reductive explanations. So in a debunking reductive explanation, what happens is the explanation at that lower level, the reduction actually sort of like does away with and somehow disproves or makes redundant the thing that occurs at the the level it's being reduced from. One example, just uh, sorry, just comes to mind. I think the perfect example of that for me would be something like temperature. An early idea about temperature was that it was this substance, this calorific substance that flowed between objects. But a reductive explanation of temperature is that it's the mean molecular kinetic energy. And that is what temperature is. And it's a powerful, generalizable, reductive explanation that allows us to talk about temperatures way beyond our our kind of everyday experience. We talk about absolute zero. We talk about temperature at the surface of the sun because we know what temperature and heat really is. But not all scientific explanations are like that, I think, is the point. Yeah. So if you take an example of psychology, you know, you can analyze very carefully what's going on at the neurological level, what's happening with the neurons firing and so forth. But that doesn't debunk the explanation that we do things because we have desires, because we have intentions. And in fact, it's hard to make sense of human behaviour unless you see those things as being part of the explanation. So, you know, maybe I jump onto that, I agree with that because it makes life more comfortable for me. But it does seem to me that there are these just different levels of explanation and which level of explanation is much most appropriate is kind of context dependent. And the idea that the most truthful and important explanation is always at the lowest, most reductive level just seems to be unfounded. Well, listen, uh, we need to wrap things up, unfortunately. We could go on forever. It's been absolutely fascinating, as usual. Uh, if you've become even more interested in my guests than you were at the beginning, then Anil Seth's book, uh, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, is highly recommended and is that available in paperback now Anil? it is yeah it's in paperback 
Okay, so not only widely available, but also highly affordable. Thoroughly recommend that. And for Simon, you tune into his podcast, Philosophy Takes on the News. Um, I have been a guest on it myself and have therefore lowered the tone, but you can always look at the show notes and pick the episodes without me in it, and then you're sure to get a quality experience. Um, there are plenty more episodes in the series we found in the archive. Please do delve into that and share, like and review all of those things which help to get the word out. But for now, let me just say thank you once more to my guests, Anil Seth and Simon Kirchin. And until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.